Is it really true that God can forgive any sin? If you've been a Christian a while, uh, most would not have too much difficulty in saying yes to that question, so long as the question remains in the abstract. Can God forgive any sin? Yes. The question becomes a bit more difficult to answer when things start to get specific. Could God forgive a terrorist? Could God forgive an adulterer? Could God forgive the most serious sexual offences? Could God forgive abortion? Could God forgive murder? Now, if you have any of those things weighing on your own conscience, the question of whether God could forgive them is so much more difficult to answer. You know, you might know that the answer in theory remains yes. But the strength of your guilt for those things is all too overwhelming. And you're not really sure, even if you give yourself the answer, you're not really sure you are convinced by it. And by the way, it's not just those people who've committed such obvious and extreme things who struggle with this issue of guilt. There have been many thousands of godly Christians throughout the history of the church, people who we would look up to as examples of piety and holiness, who have yet felt crushed by the weight of guilt. Unsure whether God really can forgive their sin. What would be the most difficult thing for God to forgive, would you say? What would be the most obvious and outrageous sin? What would be the most obvious way that a person could rebel against God? What about if a person killed God's only son? Could God forgive Judas? Could God forgive Caiaphas, the high priest, who sentenced Jesus to death? Could God forgive Pontius Pilate? And even if God could forgive them, more importantly, would he? Would God forgive even the most serious sins? And even if he would forgive them, how would we know? What comfort is there to ease the, the conscience of a convicted believer. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, the disciple of Jesus, preaching after that first Easter, preaching to a huge crowd in Jerusalem, and in verse 22, he lays this charge at their feet. Verse 22, he says, You had every evidence available to you to know who this man was. He was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. You knew who Jesus was, Peter says. And yet what did you do to him? Verse 23. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Humanly speaking, there was never a group of people so obviously opposed to God than this crowd in Jerusalem. 
And yet, how did Peter finish that sermon? Verse 38 now, uh, Peter replied to them, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Incredible. How does Peter manage to go from laying this most serious charge at the feet of this crowd to then making such a wide sweeping offer to every single one of those crowd that they might receive forgiveness from God? The answer you will see is that it's all about the resurrection. That's what gives G- Peter the confidence of moving from this, this more serious charge, accusation, guilt, to this offer of forgiveness. It's the resurrection. Jesus is the man who death could not hold, verse 24. Jesus' resurrection has been promised throughout the scriptures. God has been waiting for this day to come. Peter and the apostles have spoken with the resurrected Jesus himself, verse 32. Throughout Peter's sermon, he's reminding people, he's showing people, he's teaching people, perhaps for the first time, that this Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And it's because of that fact that they can have forgiveness. As you wrestle against the accusations of a guilty conscience, the Bible's message is clear. God can forgive your sin God can forgive your sin yes even your sin and you can be sure of that because of the reality of the resurrection this evening I'm going to look at two ways which the resurrection shows us uh, two, two important things that the resurrection shows us about who Jesus is And then thirdly, conclude by thinking about how those things help us answer that question of whether God can really bring us forgiveness. So the first, the resurrection shows us that Jesus really was the son of God. The resurrection shows us that Jesus really was the son of God. During Jesus' ministry, he'd made all sorts of claims about himself, really quite outlandish claims. So many viewed them. Claims that put himself at the centre of his gospel. Claims that called people to follow him, to trust him, to look up to him, to even worship him. Claims of being able to forgive sin. Claims of a divine authority that wasn't borrowed or received like the prophets might have had divine authority. No, this divine authority came from himself. And Jesus made claims about a unique relationship to God. He claimed... That God was his father and he was the son of God in a way that no other human being could ever relate to God. It was those claims that would be brought up at his trial and that would finally be the decisive piece of evidence that would lead to Jesus being sentenced to death. But during his ministry, it would have been hard, actually, to deny those claims that he was making. When you saw Jesus calm the storm just with his words, how could you then deny his claim to be divine, to be the son of God? When you saw Jesus feed a football stadium full of people with just a couple of sandwiches, 
How could you deny his claim to be divine? When you saw Jesus raise people from the dead on multiple occasions, how could you deny his claim to be the Son of God? How could he do those things if God were not with him? But what about on Good Friday? What about on the cross? Where was God then? It was there that Jesus himself cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And as Jesus hung on the cross, the crowds around him mocked him saying, You said you were the Son of God. If you are, come down and save yourselves. The argument of the religious leaders was a little bit more refined. Their mockery was, let God save him. If if this man really is the man he says he is, let God act. Let God show himself. Let God reveal to us that this man really is the son of God. He himself said he was the son of God. Where is God now defending his son? Well, he's nowhere to be seen. For the religious leaders, Jesus' death on the cross was the vindication for them. The proof that they had got it right. That this man really was a fraudster. That he was not the man he claimed to be. But Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the grave. Jesus was resurrected. And at the resurrection... That was the moment when God owns Jesus before the whole world. That was the moment when God declares in a voice louder and more clear than than at his baptism or, or at his transfiguration. In a voice clearer that says, this is my son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And so in Peter's sermon in Acts, three or four times, he's telling the crowds, look, it is God who raised this Jesus from the dead. God raised him up. God raised him up. God raised him up because he is God's son. The resurrection is God's proof to you and I that Jesus really was the man who he claimed to be, the son of God. The fact of Jesus' deity The fact of him being the eternal son of God is is not just an interesting aside. It is of central importance to any question that we might have about whether we can be forgiven. For these reasons. When Jesus died on the cross, he was bearing the weight of the penalty that we should owe for the wrong that we've done. Now, if we have no one to take that penalty... That penalty costs us an eternity of God's wrath. It costs a mortal, a mortal human, you or I, an eternity of God's wrath. No mortal, finite person can even pay for their own sin, let alone anyone else's. If Jesus is going to pay for the sins of other people, numerous other people, thousands, yes, millions of other people, He needs to be more than just a man. He needs to be the eternal, the infinite, the infinitely good, the infinitely pure son of God. And that's who he is. And, you know, for the forgiveness to really be forgiveness, God himself has to be the one paying the price. Vengeance is when you make somebody repay. 
If somebody steals from you, you get vengeance when you make them repair. If somebody insults you, you get vengeance when you make that, when you insult them in return. But forgiveness is when the one who has been offended absorbs the cost themselves. Forgiveness is when the one who has been sinned against is the one who carries the cost of the offence. If Jesus is going to bring us real forgiveness, he needs to be one with God the Father. He needs to be the eternal Son of God. So when God shows us that Jesus really is who he says he was by raising him from the dead, it's not just an interesting aside. It is of central importance to any question that we have about forgiveness. The resurrection shows us that Jesus really is the son of God. Secondly, um, the resurrection shows us that Jesus completed his work as our representative. The resurrection shows us that Jesus isn't just a religious fanatic who kind of withers out into obscurity. He's declared with power to be the son of God. But when God raises him and declares him to be his son in that way, God didn't raise him from the dead just because he was his son. Uh, similar to how you might think of a, a, a biased sports coach always picking their son for the team, no matter how good or bad they are, because they're biased. It is their son. They want them to do well. Now, that's not what was going on at the resurrection. God raised Jesus as a sign to us that Jesus has completed the work he has been sent to accomplish. The whole purpose of Jesus coming, we were hearing about this this morning, the whole purpose of Jesus coming was that he would act as our representative. It was no use for Jesus to come and be divine, but not human. He had always been divine, but he had to become human. He had to become like one of us. He had to take on a human nature. He had to feel the same temptations. He had to endure the same difficulties. He had to submit himself to the same standards of God's law. And his whole ministry was done in a public capacity in order to, to set himself up to be this representative of his people. His purpose was not just to, to join us and be like us, his purpose was to represent us, to stand as our head, as our family lead. And so on the cross, he was treated as a representative, not by the people who were thrusting spears in his side or hurling insults at him. They weren't treating him as their representative. But God on the cross treated Jesus as the representative of all the people who would trust in him. Jesus was considered responsible. Jesus was considered responsible for my sin. Jesus was considered responsible by God for the sins of all of his people. Yes, even the sins of some of those people who at that moment were mocking him, insulting him throwing stones at him, shoving spears in his side. Jesus was representing them and being held responsible for even some of their sin. The sins of mortal, fallen humanity were being paid for 
by the holiness of the eternal Son of God. Now the question is, how can we be sure that on the cross Jesus paid for all sin? How can we be sure that any and every sin was paid for there? We can maybe acknowledge that he paid a high price. He gave his life. But has he really absorbed the guilt of even those most terrible sins? That's the question. The answer lies in the resurrection. If there had been anything left for Jesus to pay, if there had been any debt of sin outstanding, if there had been any sin that remained that Jesus had not paid the price for, if God's justice had not been satisfied, Jesus, by necessity, must have remained in the grave. By necessity of God's justice. By necessity of the power of death, which is the penalty for sin. If any sin remained at all, Jesus would have remained dead. But he rose. David prophesied, Peter says, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Who is that Holy One? None other than the Lord Jesus. He was holy. He remained holy. He is holy. And because of his holiness, because of his goodness, because of his rightness, because of his purity, even the filth and the dirt of all our sin could not stain him permanently. The resurrection shows us that he had no sin left outstanding. He paid for it all. Not his own sin, but our sin. Himself being responsible for the sins that we have committed. So let's go back to that question that we started with. Then. Can God forgive any sin? When you view that question in the light of the resurrection, the answer is a resounding yes. God is able to forgive any sin because all sin has been paid for. And that's my conclusion this evening. He has paid fully for all our sins. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's own demonstration that the sacrifice Jesus made was both of sufficient nature and of sufficient worth. You can imagine if I went down to the bank or if I went online and, and took out uh, £5,000 of money and went over to France you have to forgive all the plot holes in this little illustration. You know, I recognise the borders are closed, but just go with me for a moment. If I took out £5,000, went to France and tried to buy a house with it, you realise I wouldn't have much luck. Because, for the first thing, I would have the wrong currency. They don't take pounds in France, they take euros. And secondly, £5,000 is far too little amount of money to be able to buy a house. You need much more than that. Insufficient value and insufficient nature, insufficient currency. The resurrection shows us that when Jesus offered his life, it was of sufficient value and it was of a sufficient nature. If he had not been both human and divine, the sacrifice would not have been effective. If he had not been divine, the sacrifice would have not been enough. 
But by God raising him from the dead, God shows us his sacrifice was of the right nature and of the right value to pay for all the sins of his people. So God can forgive any sin. It's not a question of how great is the sin. It's more a question of how great is the sacrifice that Jesus made. And the sacrifice that Jesus made is infinite, of infinite worth, of infinite value. So he can forgive the sin. But then there's the more important question. Would he forgive my sin? Would he forgive any sin? Would he forgive my sin? That was the question that the crowd had to Peter. Verse 37. What shall we do? How could God forgive us for this thing that we've done? Would God forgive you? Once you've understood what Jesus was doing in offering his life on the cross. You will see that. For Jesus' payment of sin to be effective, he needs to be acting as your representative. Would Jesus forgive your sin? Would God forgive your sin? The answer lies in the question of whether you belong to Jesus. Do you belong to Jesus? Have you been baptised into his name? Are you trusting him? Are you following him? Have you repented and turned from sin in your life and begun following him? Do you submit yourself to his word? Are you part of his church, which is his body? Do you really belong to Jesus? If you don't, then then his sacrifice on the cross as Perhaps inspirational it might be to you. Perhaps as helpful to you as it might be for you to think about it. It's doing nothing in terms of securing forgiveness for you. Unless you belong to him. Unless he is there as your representative. If he's not done that, then the responsibility for your sin still lays on your own head. And that's a responsibility, a debt that will take an eternity to pay off. And so the first part of the answer, would God forgive your sin? The first part of the answer is no. Not unless Christ is your representative. Not unless you belong to Jesus. But then there's a second part of the answer, which is yes, he would. If you do belong to Christ... If you have been united to him, then the resurrection of Jesus is good news for you. If the cross was God, God's judgment on Jesus for your sake, then the resurrection is God's justification of Jesus for your sake. If the cross was God's judgment upon God, his, uh, if, if the cross was God's judgment and, and punishment of Jesus, then the resurrection was God's lifting Jesus up, affirming him, welcoming him back, declaring to the world that this son belongs to me, just as much as it is God declaring to the world that you belong to him, if you are in Christ Jesus. If God declares Jesus guilty on the cross because of you, he declares you innocent at the resurrection because of Jesus. Because the fullness of the penalty has been paid there is nothing left outstanding peter says in his sermon it was not possible for death to keep a hold on jesus given who he was 
given what had happened on the cross, it just was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. God's justice had been fully met. His work was completed. It was finished. There was nothing left for him to pay. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. Now, equally true is that if you are united to Jesus, if you belong to him, it is equally impossible that your sins will not be forgiven. Because Christ Jesus has paid the penalty in full. That is the good news of Easter. That's why we celebrate the resurrection. Because it means my sin has been wiped away. I have been washed clean. I am forgiven. I am counted righteous. And I know that because Jesus is raised from the dead. Isn't that reason to celebrate? Isn't that reason to praise him? We're going to do just that in a few moments by singing. But what I thought we'd do first is just have a moment of quiet. Spend some time in prayer. Confess your sin to Jesus. Recognize the ways you have fallen short. Recognize that on the cross he was paying for your sin. Spend some time in confession. Spend some time thanking Jesus for the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't belong to Jesus, use this time to repent of sin, to turn to Jesus for the first time, to give your life to him and use this moment as the first step in a lifetime of following in his footsteps, belonging to him, having him as your representative and as your head.